We return to our dialogue with Alan McLeod in his recent article on Yemen and Saudi Arabia. But my, the point I'm trying to get to, though, is if the American public knew, or to flip the script, if Russia was supplying a country with nearly all of its military aid, and that country was creating the greatest humanitarian disaster per the UN in the world for the last five years, that would be all over the newspapers here. That would be, you know, we, we have a whole hysterical complex with indicting countries who we perceive are not following our foreign policy dictates, regardless of the will of their majority population. Or specifically indicting Russia without seeing hard evidence of, of claims. And here you have hard evidence. It's indisputable evidence and not a peep out of anyone. And as I mentioned earlier, it's in collaboration with the MSNBC, the kind of liberal presence, all the media really, not really covering this at all as well. And consequently, the American public kind of being left out of that informational pathway. So from a propaganda or informational perspective, that, that's gotta be a big concern for anyone that's really interested in trying to promote human rights in the world, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, I wrote an article for Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting last year called Dictator Media Codeword for Government We Don't Like. And what it was really about was, you know, if, uh, if you asked anyone on the street in the U.S. or in most Western countries to quick name some dictators, they'd probably say names like Assad, Gaddafi, King Jong-un. People like that would immediately come to light. But um, actually, uh, a study by uh, Rich Whitney in Truthout showed that uh, the U.S. provides military assistance to 73% of the world's dictatorships. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, is that dictator is a really powerful moniker to give somebody. It, you know, it almost suggests that you really have to overthrow the person. You can't just uh, support a dictatorship. These sorts of things have to be opposed. And that's the thing, you know, with Saudi Arabia, when they uh, commit crimes, we don't really hear about them because... They're really our dictators. The only countries that we hear about committing crimes tend to be countries that are not already allied to the U.S. So, of course, there are serious problems with democracy in Iran and Syria, for instance. But they're the sort of countries that will get labeled dictatorship, while Qatar or Egypt, they won't be labeled dictatorships at all. In fact, you know, in reporting, when they do get talked about, they're just labeled as, you know, respected president or longtime leader of the country rather than this word, dictator. And that's kind of what happens with violence as well. When Russia was bombing places in Syria, for instance, the media was absolutely full of it and also denouncing Russia's aggressive role. But when the U.S. helps Saudis bomb Yemen, we go a year without you know, talking about it in a lot of mainstream sources. Mm -hmm. And that's really what's going on. There's a very long, a long tradition of uh, what media scholars call worthy victims. That was actually a phrase coined by Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman in their book, Manufacturing Consent. And they said that, you know, to media, it really depends who is dying and uh, who is oppressing them. And that's really the main thing of, you know, whether you're going to hear about it in mainstream corporate press. Mm -hmm. So if, if somebody is being killed by one of our official enemies, like Russia or China, for instance, that might make the front page uh, news or the weekly or the, you know, the nightly bulletin on the TV. But if one of our allies is killing a group of people, that's probably not even getting it talked about on page 34 of the newspaper. Mm -hmm. And it's like that with uh, Yemen. 
these Houthi rebels, you know, a lot of people say they're allied with Iran, which is hardly a friend of the U.S. They are being attacked by Saudi Arabia, which is one of the U.S.'s biggest allies. And so these things just get kind of swept under the rug and not talked about. And that is, unfortunately, how uh, the U.S. press and most of the Western press uh, actually work. So kind of consistent with that is one of the things that consistently materializes when you study, which I do, the kinds of governments we support and the ones we try to overthrow, is that overwhelmingly, whether it's 2009 in Honduras, whether it's Iraq, or whether it's in Libya 2011, you just keep going down the, the list of all of these major conflicts. The majority population of these countries, under Haiti, under you know, Aristide, people did much, much better under the Lavalis party. I'm talking about the majority population. You look at the major indices of life expectancy, of literacy, of all the basic needs that have to be met before any type of other civil rights and stuff can even have an opportunity to be realized. All of those countries consistently, we are on the wrong side of human rights by virtue of who we are supporting. That when, when the person that we have in power or want to have in power gets kicked out, Aristide-type person or whoever else we want to throw out later comes to power, all of a sudden the quality of life for the majority population goes markedly down. And so I wanted to go back. You know, you had mentioned how when Russia was bombing Syria, so many of those reports were very misdirected. Number one, the main thing, and, I want, and this ties into one of the links to one of the, the articles that you wrote, that obviously the greatest resistance was being spearheaded in Syria, uh, not by moderate rebels. That was always a, a myth that's been shown to be a myth, and Tulsi Gabbards and others have tried to get that out as well as just dozens of other reports. But when finally when Russia got involved, they got involved because they were asked to be involved. They were asked by their ally, Syria, to help them with uh, bombing these, not, you know, rebel folks, but predominantly jihadist folks, these terrorist folks. And we, the United States, we had already been bombing for over a year, about a year, before Russia even got into the picture. And there was not even a dent in the terrorism of ISIS. And the unfettered access of ISIS to the oil in Syria being transported back and forth through Turkey, the U.S. ally at the time. And in fact, in their numbers and in the, and the land that they controlled, in fact, it was expanding and, and, and those types of things. You know, we claim we were there in order to fight ISIS, but in reality, we're either the most inept military in the history of the world. With all of our power, we couldn't even put a dent in it. But within a matter of months, once Russia got involved a year later, the demise of ISIS and other terrorist groups significantly began and continued to this very day. And they're holed up in, you know, that Idlib province and, and, and such. And so... And when Russia or Syrian troops try to attack them, it's blasted all over the press as killing civilians. When you hear these stories, whether it was in Aleppo or these other places, you know, the coverage was claiming that the Assad government and Russia were bombing innocent civilians. But when you interviewed the people that came out of there, where, where now we have a rich database of that information, it all collaborates this other theme that we're talking about right now, that namely the forces that we were enabling were the worst human violators. 
and of course, uh, in this article by Diego, you, you, you had it linked. Raul Diego, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you had it linked in your article. Raul Diego, he wrote an article on the 12th of, of August. I wanted to turn our attention back to your discussion of Pompeo bec- uh, as well. But he wrote an article, Yemen State Department Clears Bomb Peddler Pompeo of Wrongdoing and Civilian Deaths Investigation. But in that piece, you know, he links to the fact that a lot of these weapons is $8.1 billion in arms sales to Saudi Arabia, that a lot of those arms were actually falling into the hands of al-Qaeda-like groups. This has historically been the case. These al-Qaeda groups have always been supported by Saudi Arabia and and, uh, other of these uh, monarch nations, so to speak, or whatever. But, But can you elaborate a little bit more on that connection, on apparently... Not only are the billions of dollars going to Saudi Arabia, but they, according to the contract, they have to be used in a certain way, in a certain form, and that that's not being properly monitored. And they're, they're being, some of them are going to these other much more reactionary types of elements. So can you speak a, a little bit more to that? And as you feel comfortable, this inquiry into Pompeo, in which he was quote-unquote cleared by his own State Department, this was after the original inspector general, if I'm not mistaken, was fired. So and questions arose as to maybe that particular inspector general might not have had such a clearing of wrongdoing as the quote-unquote official State Department report of investigating itself resulted that Pompeo ends up saying we did everything by the book type of deal. Can, can, you, can you speak to those issues? Yeah. So there's obviously a lot to criticize about Syria and Iraq you know, 20 years ago, uh, they were clearly not democracies. But one thing that's very clear is that they were probably the most secular places in the Middle East. Both Syria and Iraq were controlled by Ba'athists, who were famously secular. And although I actually went to Syria in 2011, just before the conflict started, and while there were religious tensions, it was clear that the country was officially secular, and it was there was pretty much freedom of religion for, you know, Christians or for a different sects of Muslims as well. But now we fast forward to 2020, and Syria and Iraq are the hotbeds, the global hotspots of jihadist Islamist movements like uh, al-Qaeda and al-Nusra. And the fact of the matter is, is that when foreign countries start getting involved and bombing countries' infrastructure, bombing their sewage, bombing the universities, destroying any sort of semblance for a positive life, a lot of the time, the only sort of organization left is these mosques, and they tend to actually be funded all around the Middle East by Saudi Arabia, who, of course, have the most money. And Saudi Arabia has really been exporting Wahhabi Islam for a long time in the form of, you know, training up clerics and starting schools. And often that's really the only sort of education anyone can get in these Middle Eastern countries anymore because their entire infrastructure has been destroyed. And so there's kind of a direct correlation between the rise of jihadist Islam and uh, the presence of American troops, or American bombs at least. It tends to follow rather than uh, proceed. There's a great book by Mark Curtis which goes into the UK and US role in uh, collaborating with uh, radical Islamic groups. And what he showed was the US and UK have constantly... It's called Secret Affairs, Britain's Collusion with Radical Islam. And what he found was that pretty much every secular, democratic, or liberal group in the Middle East, and for, you know, people who don't know the history, 
50 years ago, the Middle East was a very secular place controlled by sort of centrist nationalists like al-Nasser in Egypt, or, yeah, there's plenty of them going about, but what they found was Western countries always like to do business with the radical Islamic groups. And the reason was is that if you have any pretense of being a Democrat, the first thing you're going to do is respond to the primary will of the people in the Middle East or in Latin America or in other parts of Asia or Africa, which is that the great riches of those regions, you know, the oil in the Middle East case, should be used to help the people of the Middle East and should not be used to line the pockets of executives at Western oil corporations like BP or Shell or uh, Chevron. And so you're immediately going to come into and conflict with the U.S. government and other Western governments who do not want that arrangement to stop. They want the profits from oil to continue to flow back to London and Washington, D.C. and Paris and Amsterdam. And so that means that the U.S. and U.K. really wanted to find some groups that would act as a counterweight against this. And they generally find that, you know, strongly conservative religious nutters, you know, the sort of uh, Westboro Baptist Church of the Middle East, were a good group because they didn't really care about responding to the will of the people. They were really only interested in gaining power to spread their ideology. And so across the Middle East, we've seen radical Islamic groups being supported all the time as a counterweight to more secular groups. You know, in Palestine, Hamas was supported as a counterweight to Fatah and Yasser Arafat. The Muslim Brotherhood was supported in Egypt against uh, al-Nasser, for instance. The list is pretty long. And that's one of the main reasons why there is such a problem with extremely conservative, radical, jihadist Islam in the Middle East is because a lot of the time the U.S. has actually been kind of supporting it, or at least turning a blind eye to it with Saudi Arabia. In terms of the Pompeo case, I mean, Raul would probably be a good person to speak to. I think he lives in Austin, actually. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, if we look at history, the United States government is very, very rarely going to convict one of its own for carrying out official U.S. policy. I mean, the closest we got with that was the Iran-Contra affair, where Elliot Abrams and Oliver North were convicted of selling arms to Iran to fund their own uh, revolutionary armies in Central America to try to overthrow the Sandinista government in Nicaragua. That made a lot of headlines, and they were given a kind of slap on the wrist. But then, immediately, George H.W. Bush used his presidential prerogative to pardon them. And so they never actually served any consequences. And now people like Elliot Abrams are back in government in the Trump administration, being a Venezuela and Iran point man for the Trump administration. So it's pretty clear what his role is going to be uh, in those two countries. And uh, I think uh, people in Tehran and Caracas should be very worried about that indeed. Absolutely. And I appreciate you tying these things together because when you tie it together, the underlying consistencies point us in the direction of truth. And, and, and you know, you were mentioning the tendency towards supporting monarchies because of, you know, that the more democratic you are, the more uh, voices given to the majority population, the more majority population gets a say in things, the more the quality of life will go up for them. But that means diverting more monies to social and the public sectors where they should be and that type of thing and not creating the most extravagant profiteering environment that corporations desire, the ones that are really represented by Western governments rather than the people's interest. And I was just thinking as you were saying that and then tying it back to Central and Latin America, certainly there weren't monarchs 
in Central and Latin America, but I cut my teeth on injustice on that history and the horrific military dictatorships and the death squads and the kinds of activities that you see and you saw in Syria. You know, you saw Christian religious leaders getting beheaded and there was no coverage in our media here. That same scenario was going on back in the uh, 70s and 80s in in El Salvador and throughout Guatemala. And the rest of Central America. And, uh, you know, where the many clergy became very active in liberation theologists in defending these basic human rights of the poor and such. And so the governments there that we were supporting, that we were giving enormous amounts of military aid to relative to other groups, were just as pernicious, but just operating in a different part of the world at a different time, working congruently with U.S. and Western foreign policy interests. So that's alarming. The most alarming thing, though, is if we don't know our history, we don't hear the alarms. And if we don't hear the alarms, we don't know that there is this raging fire going on that's consuming. If they're not killing millions of people, their quality of life of that millions of people getting back to Yemen is intolerable and unacceptable. So, I don't know, it's a little frustrating when you turn the TV on at night and they have these advertisements for dogs that are homeless and abandoned and need you to send donations to the, you know these groups, which of course I, which is fine. You know, I don't want to see any animal being being harmed or that type of thing but we have this other human disaster after disaster going on in this don't even get any type of coverage well let me ask you if you were to sum up the most important qualities that we've talked about and that your article points to what might those be and then also we don't have really time to get into it in great depth but i did catch that you put out an article today august 21st about the voting machine shutdowns here in the United States. I find it really bizarre. Another uncovered subject when we talk about Venezuela, where apparently all sorts of electoral machines were vandalized. Apparently they have a location where some of, they keep some of these electoral machines. And so here we are, we're supporting as a policy in the United States, the forces inside of Venezuela that destroys voting machines. <laughs> And then meanwhile, your article, of course, today had nothing to do with that, but had to do with our own questions about the tactics that are going on within U.S. Postal Office. Can you kind of sum up, kind of completely reversing field here, uh, the the, uh, the highlights from that article? Well, I think if uh, the sort of electoral irregularities uh, that we're seeing in the United States were going on in a country like Bolivia or Venezuela, there would be absolute uproar, and it would be used to justify some sort of intervention. So in terms of the U.S., the new Postmaster General has decommissioned 671 sourcing machines nationwide over the last couple of months, a lot of the time over the heads of the postal workers themselves. Now, there may be a justification on the sort of privatization effort. Of course, the post office has been, the USPS has been hit really badly by the COVID pandemic. So many businesses are moving to online only, nobody's really sending letters as much as they were, certainly not businesses anyway. And they are just hemorrhaging money right now. But, you know, there's another theory out there, and I think it's one that a lot of civil uh, rights groups like the ACLU, Public Citizen, and the NAACP, <coughs> NAACP are all subscribing to, which this is really an attack on electoral integrity come November. 
Obviously, there's a pandemic going on. It's not going to be safe in almost any state to really go to an inside voting booth, spend a couple of hours waiting in line close to everybody else where hundreds of people are, and just to cast a ballot. And so the natural answer is the fail-safe, which is used in every election, which is mail-in voting. But Trump has been attacking this, refusing to give uh, the USPS any money, trying to undermine the credibility of uh, mail-in voting. And many organizations, like the ones I uh, just uh, mentioned, are saying that this is essentially means that this is a disenfranchisement campaign is trying to, trying to submarine the validity of elections. In March, of course, Trump said that if more people voted, uh, Republicans would never be uh, elected again. And this has really been kind of a Republican strategy for a number of decades where they really need the turnout to be as low as possible because when more people start voting, you know, it tends to be rich people and elderly people who always vote. If young people and poor people, people of color, start voting, Republicans tend to not do so well. So that's really what seems to be going on in the U.S. just now. Of course, I'm sure everybody is aware about how tough it is to vote in the U.S. Often you have to wait in line for hours. Texas is one of the worst offenders. They've closed hundreds of polling stations since 2013. I think 750 was the last count I saw. In Venezuela, it's a bit different. Their electoral system has improved greatly over the past 20 years, but it's constantly described as just an absolute shambolic failure in the U.S. press, despite the fact that American organizations that go there to monitor elections like uh, Jimmy Carter's Carter Center say the election credibility is great. They have hundreds, sometimes thousands of foreign overseers who watch the proceedings, and they tend not to find very much uh, bad going on at all. Um, One interesting fact that you did mention before, yeah, in the last elections we saw the right-wing U.S.-backed opposition destroying polling booths and uh, voting centers. And this was presented uh, in the media as uh, meaning that, you know, there's really no democracy in in Venezuela, but it was presented very deceitfully, in my opinion, as, you know, framing it as like, you know, Maduro is destroying credibility of elections in Venezuela. He's a dictator. Without actually telling you that it was the opposition that was setting fire to uh, Mm -hmm. polling centers because they were boycotting it and they were trying to get Uh, other people not to vote. And so, really, uh, the sort of twisting of uh, reality is something that journalists abroad, foreign correspondents, are really um, masters of. And it really takes a lot of work to decipher the propaganda that we're getting uh, day in, day out. Mm -hmm. Very good. Well, listen, we are out of time, and thank you for your very insightful analysis tonight. I want to remind folks we've had the great pleasure visiting with Dr. Alan McLeod. He's a staff writer for Mint uh, Press. Uh, He's written a couple of books. One of them is, in 2017, Bad News from Venezuela, 20 Years of Fake News. The other is Misreporting and Propaganda in the Information Age, Still Manufacturing Consent. He has contributed to a number of integrable journalistic entities, including Fairness and Accuracy, in reporting. Alan, if there, if people want to get access to your writings, what would you suggest would be the best way to access that? Oh, yeah, sure. You can find them at mintpressnews.com or fairness and accuracy in reporting. That's mm-hmm. fair.com. Or you can just uh, follow me on Twitter if you've got an account. That's Alan R. McLeod, which is A-L-A-N-R-M-A-C-L-E-O-D. 
All right, friend. Thank you so much for your time tonight, and we'll look forward to following your work into the future. Great. Nice to speak to you. All right. Please stay tuned for our overnight broadcasting, which comes up next. You'll have to switch on over to our internet at koop.org. So join Tim for nobody's happy hour. We take you out as we do every night with Land of Naivety. Jesus for my